Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace, Lord. For you are awesome and worthy to be praised. Hallelujah. I just want to say that I am reminded as we were singing that song of a rebellious young man who was stubborn in his determination to do things his way. And yet God was faithful and good to me despite myself. Amen. How many of you have felt that? Amen? Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning for His goodness and His faithfulness towards us and the fact that He is relentless in coming after us when we would run from Him, when we would pretend to be better than we are sometimes, when we would refuse to submit. God continues to come after us with a persistent patience. Amen. If you will, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 22. And as you're turning there, I just want to share with you what, uh, a brief little encounter I had with my son this morning. Um, I did not have an introduction, per se, for my message this morning, but I was... Um, this morning, I was trying to hurry out the door. I try to be here about 8.30 on Sunday mornings, but that never happens. And um, so I'm, I'm trying to get out the door. And uh, I look at, I'm, you know, I, I did a few things, try to help Brooks get the kids ready, and then, you know, she just kind of takes care of the rest of it. But um, so I'm sitting there, and I, I'm walking out the door, and, of course, Cross's head looks like bedhead. And I'm like, man, I ought to fix his hair before I leave. So, so I walk over, and I said, Cross... Let's go, um, let's go to the bathroom, comb your hair. And he starts giggling and laughing and, you know, tries to play getaway. And, well, I ain't got time to do that. I'm trying to get to church, you know, because I'm spiritual and I got spiritual stuff to do. And, um, you know, and so, so anyway, I'm like, no, nah, I ain't got time for this cross. Let's go ahead, go to the bathroom. Let's get you, let's get your hair combed and let's get this stuff done. And, and, um, so anyway, uh, he jumps over the couch to avoid me, and then he, the, the, that's number one. Number two, I go to get him, and he runs into the bedroom to avoid me, and then he starts to whine. And finally, I think I've convinced him, and you know what? I found my pride broken because I started begging him. You know, I, I, don't, I've, I don't know that I've ever begged anybody to do anything, but now I find myself begging a child which I can manhandle, to do something. And I'm going to be honest, that was kind of a blow to my pride, and I was like, this ain't happening. So I, uh, I, I grab him, and I start steering him, you know, gently towards the bathroom. <laughs> and I think he's, he's going to go on his way, and he starts to try to take another dart to the living room instead of the bathroom. And I grab him and said, no, we're going to the bathroom. And then, so that was number two. And then we get to the bathroom. I wet the rag. I'm going to wet his hair, you know, so I can comb it. And uh, then he runs to the far corner of the bathroom. And, of course, I grab him, and I pop his behind. And because that was number three, you know, three strikes. Ain't that, ain't that how it works? And so, um, you know, and he's, I mean, he just screams bloody murder like, you know, you'd stabbed him or something. And so, and I hear, you know, I just know, I can, I can sense Brooks's disapproval from the living room. And uh, so finally I get his hair combed, come in, and just, here, here's, here's, here's what she does. Just as soon as I come in the living room, she says, come here, baby. 
said, Brooks, don't do that to him now. You're going to make him think I'm the enemy here. And um, so I said, no, he's not going there. I'm putting his underwear on, and he's going to be ready, you know. So, I, you know, th- of course, that made me feel horrible about what I'd done, you know, because, you, you know, you, those are your parents. You always second guess anytime you have to discipline your child, like, you know, what, no, you know, should I have done that or whatever? And uh, so then I'm sitting in my office this morning about, I don't know, 10 o'clock, and I'm seeking the face of God, just, you know, praying, just going to town, you know, reading over my sermon, being spiritual. And... Um, Brooks just burst in the door. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to beat these youngins. <laughs> Immediately, I felt better about myself. <laughs> and I say all that to say this, because more and more every day as a father, I become more amazed at God's patience with me. Amen? Amen? Um, so Luke 22, let's just jump in. Um, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said, this is Peter or Simon, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, Jesus, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times or deny three times that you know me. Father, bless your word this morning. Let it do its work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, we're going to talk about the person of Peter. Over the past few weeks and on and off, we have gone through different characters throughout the Scripture to talk about how God shapes our lives. And we began with Moses, and we talked about how God shapes our lives through encounter. Uh, We encounter God personally. Uh, He is more than just a figment of our imagination, more than just something we talk about on Sunday morning, but He's a, a person to be known uh, we also talked about the removal of things that we feel are important to us sometimes uh, as, as far as God goes, and we talked about David. Uh, then we talked about last time we talked about Esther, and we talked about how God shapes us by the unexpected circumstances of life. This morning what we want to talk about is God's relentless patience with us. And we find here, I think, one of the most interesting men in the New Testament, and I think one that many of us probably identify with because more than any other disciple, I think Peter's flaws are on display in the Gospels more than anybody else's. And so, therefore, we like to identify with Peter. Uh, And one of the things I want to get across this morning, and this is the main point, is I want you to understand that God's patience with us is active. When we look at Peter's life, we're going to see God's active patience. And here's what I mean by that, because a lot of times if we're not careful, when we look at patience, we mistake patience for tolerance. So here's to help you understand what I'm saying. When I say we mistake patience for tolerance, we simply a lot of times we'll put up with somebody. Maybe we'll let their character flaws or their offensive remarks or their off-putting behavior. We'll just let that slide, and we think of that as patience. And maybe it is to an extent, but I think of that more as tolerance. You just put up with people, and you just let some things go. 
But God's patience is much more than that. Uh, we do, he, he doesn't just not go off on us. Rather, it's not that just God just doesn't punish us. This is not His patience. His patience isn't that He just doesn't punish us as we should rightly deserve, but rather He actually remains involved in our lives, working in us and with us to bring us to maturity and make us like Christ. So you see the difference? See, tolerance is, I just don't unload on you, and I just don't go off on you. That's tolerance. I just let it go, right? But patience, in God's active patience, it's much more. It's not that, hey, you've disappointed me, you have failed me, you have not done exactly what I've asked you to do, but I'm not just going to not let that go. What I'm going to do is I'm going to remain actively involved in your life. And that's much more difficult, isn't it? Especially when somebody is offensive towards you, somebody disappoints you, somebody doesn't do just what you think they should do, to not just let it go, but to actually be involved in their life in trying to correct that individual and trying to walk with that individual or maybe even trying to learn from that individual some of your own character flaws is much more difficult. And I want to just tell you, that's the kind of patience God has. It's not just tolerance. It's not just overlooking flaws. It's not just letting things go. But it's God remaining actively involved in your life despite your failures and your flaws and your hiccups. That, to me, is simply amazing. This is important for us. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and, and I'll tell you why, why we need to understand God's active patience in our lives. Because in Philippians chapter 1, it says there, and this is the message version, but it says, There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that God who started this great work in you will keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ appears. God, which began a good work in you, I love this, I like the way he phrases it, He will keep at it. He won't stop. Now, this is important for you and I because a lot of times, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I feel like I'm unworthy. I feel like I fail God too many times. I feel like God really doesn't like me very much at times. And I feel like there's too many times where I have just messed up and God has basically just said, you know what, I, you know what? I'm done with you. Anybody ever felt like that? Some of you probably have. But this passage of Scripture reminds me not two things. One, God will keep at it. But the other thing it reminds me of is it says, until the day of Jesus Christ in some versions or until Christ comes again. That tells me this, that I am going to be a work in progress until the day I see Jesus face to face. That means from this day until the next, I'm going to, God's going to continue to work on me and I will not have arrived until I see Jesus. And then the Bible is very clear. It says, and when I see him, I shall be like him. Amen? Amen. So this is comforting to me, and this is something I think we need to understand about God's patience towards us because, again, it can be very easy to kind of fall into that trap of thinking, maybe I'm not as good as I need to be. Maybe I have failed God too many times. But let me tell you this. God is relentless in His pursuit of you and His desire to make you like Christ. He will not give up easily. And I love that about God. He is faithful, and the song is correct. But there are some of us in here, maybe we're on the other side of that coin. Maybe we're on the other side of that coin and maybe we feel like maybe we feel like we've gotten or maybe we are too comfortable with ourselves or we're too comfortable with our sin or maybe we think or we have mistaken God's patience for acceptance so we remain static See, we think we can handle anything that comes our way. We think God is lucky to have us on his side. You know, these are the the opposite side of the of the spectrum so to speak. You, as much as me, need God's patience. 
The Bible says the best we can do is filthy rags. So, so you know, a lot of times those people who feel like they've arrived, a lot of times those people who almost have that, you know, you wouldn't describe yourself as a Pharisee, but you, you, you are in essence a Pharisee. Because you feel like, hey, I've been good enough and, and God is lucky to have me here and, and, you know, I don't even have to be here on a Sunday morning, but I'm here and God should be glad about that. You know, that kind of attitude. Let me just tell you, God's patient with you too. Amen? It isn't like, it isn't like you've got it all together, even though sometimes maybe we think that. And I don't think that's many of you. There may be a few of you in here. But I think for the most part, most of us are probably on that other side corner. We're like, maybe I feel to God, God too much. Maybe I just haven't measured up. Maybe God has gotten frustrated with me. But I'm telling you, he is actively patient. So let's look at this guy named Peter. And let's bring it back here. Now, Peter, just as a little bit of background, Peter is a redneck, foul-mouthed fisherman from Galilee. He might as well be from Duplin County or Sneeds Ferry or somewhere like that. That's what Peter is, okay? He's got an accent, and when people look at Peter, what they find is they find a backwoods man with his car up on blocks in front of his house. That's Peter, right? Or his boat. I should say his boat. All right, that's Peter. He is not an academic. Peter is not, you know, from... Uh, he's not a priest. He's not a synagogue leader. I don't even know if Peter probably even went to synagogue, okay? Uh, this man was not what you would consider a religious leader in his day. Uh, in fact, we look back and we find that, uh, you know, I, I love to look at Jesus' first meeting with Peter. Uh, because wonder, and I'm not sure if this was exactly the first time they met, but one of the things that happens is this in their, one of their very first meetings is, is Jesus decides he wants to do some teaching. Well, you know, and Jesus is starting to get kind of pretty popular around Capernaum and Galilee and the areas where he's been uh, preaching. And, and so he decides, you know what, I'm going to get Peter's boat. And so the crowds won't kind of swamp me. I'll just, you know, get out into the uh, water a little bit. And the water's very good about carrying sound waves too. So this was kind of a way to amplify Jesus' voice. And so I'll get out in the boat, and we'll go out in the water a little bit, and what we'll do is I will teach from the water and, and then, you know, see, see how that goes. And so he does that, and he teaches. It doesn't even say, the Bible doesn't even say what he teaches. I have no idea. But he teaches from the water, and as he's teaching from the water, um, the, he finishes up his sermon, and he tells Peter, he says, you know, let's launch out into the deep, and let's go see if we can catch some fish. And Peter, at this point, now, we don't catch this just by reading the text, but if you read the text entirely and you actually read, kind of the, the, read it in the Greek, you, you, you get what's going on in Peter's mind. Peter essentially looks at Jesus and says, I don't know who you think you are. I'm the fisherman here. Uh, you may be a preacher. And we fished all night and we hadn't caught anything. Uh, a, I'm tired. B, we're not going to catch nothing. All right? And so Peter says, just do it. Or Jesus says, just do it. And he said, and Peter says this. He makes this remark. He says, Master, okay, at your word. And this, and again, it's said with sarcasm. You don't catch it uh, in, in just reading it over, but it's said with sarcasm because basically what he says there is he says, let me see if I can find it. Um, <laughs> he says, basically, Master, whatever you say. Right after he questioned him. So again, he's being sarcastic towards Jesus. And then they come back and they have this discussion after they have caught more fish than they can handle, okay? They come back and they have this discussion and he basically looks at Peter and he says, or his name's Simon and he calls him Simon. He says, Simon, you're not going to be Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Rock instead of Simon. And this, from this day forward, you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going to catch men. 
And, and when I look at this little encounter, it tells me a lot about Jesus. It tells me a lot about Peter. Uh, one, Peter kind of has things figured out. Peter is kind of a little bit of a know-it-all. Uh, the other thing is Peter is very impulsive, and he does not mind speaking his mind. Okay? How many of you in here are like that? You have no qualms about just saying whatever's on your mind. Sometimes there is no filter between here and here, right? And Peter's that guy. Now, I probably think too much about what I'm going to say, but Peter does it. He doesn't think at all about what he's going to say. Peter, I don't think he ever lies in bed and thinks to himself, I wish I'd have said that. Okay? I lie in my bed and I think about that all the time. You know, I should have said that or I should have done this. Peter's not that kind of guy. And so, basically, he is known for being impulsive. He is known for being critical. He is known for being proud. He cares a lot about what people think of him. You know, all the time he is standing up saying things like, everybody else, Jesus, may deny you, but there's no way I will deny you, you know. He, 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 and not only is he trying to lift himself up, but he is actually disrespecting his fellow disciples by basically saying, those guys, they're not good as I am, all right? Does everybody see what I'm saying here? This is not, you know, uh, again, a paragon of virtue here. In fact, his name, Simon, his first name, Simon, actually means a reed blowing in the wind. That's what his first name means. And I think that kind of speaks of Peter's vacillating character. He's, he's somebody that's really hot sometimes, somebody that's really cold. He's somebody that can be really on it sometimes. And he's probably one of these guys that you give him a task to do, and he jumps on, and he's ready to go right to start with. But when it gets hard, nah, I'm going to go do something else, right? And we see that after Je even after Jesus is raised from the dead. You know, one of the things we see is what Peter does. First thing he does is goes back, what, fishing. Goes back to what he's comfortable with. He's kind of vacillating. And what Jesus does in this first encounter, when he looks at this man, who again, a, a redneck fisherman from Galilee with a, a vacillating character, always saying what's on his mind, he looks at this man and he says, your name is Simon. You're a reed blowing in the wind. But I'm going to call you rock. I'm going to call you Peter. That's what Peter means. It means rock or stone. It's a lot, it's a, and what we see there is we see Jesus kind of giving Peter uh, almost a, a, uh, an indication of what he wants Peter to become. And I love that about Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks at us, a lot of times, you know, we see the worst part of ourselves, and that's good. All right, we need to. We need to be convicted of sins. But there are a lot of times we don't see what God wants us to become. And so when Jesus looks at Peter, he does not just tell Peter, hey, you have a vacillating character. You're inconsistent in the person who you are. Your name is Simon. But you know what I also see? I also see a rock. I love that. He gives Peter a nickname to remind Peter of what he ought to be. And the Bible says that we have a new name, right, written in heaven. And that new name, I think, is a reminder of what we ought to be. And I think too often, rather than allow Jesus to dictate what we ought to be, rather than allow Jesus to dictate our, our identity, what we end up doing is we allow society or culture to dictate what we ought to be. Our culture says to, hey, here's what you ought to be, and then we work ourselves to death to be what people expect us to be, right? Rather than look at what Jesus has called us to be and work to try to become that. Amen? And so we look at this, and we look at Peter's character here, and what we find is he is not a rock. He is vacillating. He is inconsistent. He is undependable. But Jesus Christ is actively patient in Peter throughout his life to change him from being a reed blowing into a wind to the rock upon which he can begin to build his church. Amen? I love that about Jesus. 
And so rather than let the culture tell us what we should be, rather than let our own human nature tell us what we should be, that's what the, and that's part of what the culture does. The culture says, hey, you've got to do you. You've got to do whatever's comfortable for you. And that's what you know, our broken human nature says, well, I want to do this, 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 and this. And then we work ourselves to death to try to accomplish those things, to follow our feelings, our passions, our desires, rather than look at what Jesus has called us to be and seek to become that. And let me just tell you this. I think that if we will allow God's patience to work in us, we will find ourselves transformed into the people Jesus intends. And we will see in Peter's life he will go from being a reed blowing into the wind to a solid rock that can be depended upon. Amen? So, how is it that we find that Jesus is actively patient in Peter's life? Well... First of all, I find this, and here is Jesus' patience. I find that Jesus gives Peter sobering truth on a number of occasions. Now, this is not always easy for the one giving the truth. Now, I, I'm going to just be honest with you. You know, you know, my wife, my children, people that, that I uh, mentor or people that, that are under me to some extent, it's very difficult for me sometimes to tell them the truth. Does anybody want to know why? Because I want them to like me, Right? And sometimes there are truths that need to be spoken into people's lives that are not very comfortable for them to receive. And the ones that have to speak that truth sometimes, it's very difficult for them because I don't want somebody to dislike me. I don't want somebody to be angry with me. I want you to like me. Now, that's part of my fallen nature. Um, and I think every one of us, whether you admit it or not, have a little bit of that in us, right? Now, parents, I think, get over this with their children. You don't care if your children like you. You're just going to do what I tell you to do, right? But at the same time, we are not like that with our peers or people around us because, again, we want people to like us. Well, Jesus is more concerned about Peter's soul than he is concerned about Peter liking him. And there are a lot of times what happens here is that Peter, Jesus gives Peter some very uncomfortable and sobering truth. I'll give you an example. Um, one time, they are at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is asking these questions. He's basically saying, you know, who do people say that I am? And they give all these answers. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some, you know, kind of come back. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Elijah and da-da-da. And they give all these different examples of what people say that Jesus is. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the first to speak, he actually gets it right this time. Probably the first time I can remember. He gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, I, he just says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood is not revealed that you by my Father in heaven. The very next breath, Jesus begins to talk about how he has to go to Jerusalem and die. And here Peter is, just confess that Jesus was more than a prophet, that this was God in the flesh. And Jesus tells the disciples, I got to go to Jerusalem, I got to die, I got to suffer, and all these things. And then Peter grabs Jesus and says, Not so, Lord. He just told him, He said, You're the Lord God, King of all the earth. And then he says, not so, right? Isn't that an oxymoron, right? <laughs> no, you're wrong, Lord. I know you see the end from the beginning. You control all things and you're sovereign, but you're wrong. You can't got this right. And Jesus responds to Peter in the most subtle way possible. He says, get behind me, Satan, right? Talk about sobering. 
Now, he's just commended Peter, and that's great. He just commended Peter for what he got right, but then he turns around and he says that basically calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he wasn't necessarily calling Peter Satan. The temptation, the, the, the act of trying to thwart God's plan was satanic, and that's what Jesus was getting at. But again, it was sobering. Can you imagine being called Satan by God or by Jesus? Can you imagine that? But it was sobering, and I am sure it got Peter's attention. And then the, one, the passage I just read from you out of, out, of the, um, out of Luke basically said the same thing, or basically said that uh, you know, Peter's thinking, you know, everybody else is going to deny you, and this is about the second time he had done this. Everybody else is going to deny you, but I'll never deny you. I'll go with you to death, Jesus. And then Jesus looks at Peter, and he basically says, no, nah, you're going to fail. Listen, sobering truth is very important in our growth as a Christian. It is important. Change is not possible without truth. The Bible says that truth will set you free, but it will hurt you first. It, it'll grind you to dust first a lot of times. And you must find out... You know, I think about... When I think about sobering truth, if you've got um, a coach, for example, of a football team, baseball team, or whatever, and you've got this really talented individual you know has got potential, that coach is going to be on that individual like white on rice, isn't he? Always going to be on him. And, that, and, and it can be a tendency. I watched this when I, when I was involved with the football team and stuff, and I watched you know, some of the coaches get on some of these individuals, and they would get frustrated. They would get angry about it. They would think, the coach has got it out for me. And, and a lot of times what they would say is something like this, you need to get worried when I stop saying stuff to you because I've given up on you. Listen, as long as you have God's Word, as long as you keep feeling the conviction of sin and you feel horrible when you mess up, you are in the right place. Because God is trying to give you truth that will change your life. When you start feeling too comfortable, when you start feeling distant, or you start feeling like you don't even give a second thought to whether God's involved, you need to become worried at that point. But I'm telling you, the sobering truth of God's Word is what helps change us. And God, and we find that Jesus is consistent and persistent in His telling the disciples the truth rather than hold back from them because He knows that truth will change them. In that, He also finds, we find that Jesus teaches and He reteaches several points to his disciples over and over and over again. Let me just give you the, the, the lesson on servanthood, all right? There, there's this one time where John and James, they decide, now all the disciples are there, but they decide, hey, we're going to, we, we're going to ask Jesus that we could sit on his right hand and his left hand when he enters the kingdom, you know, because we're pretty awesome. And uh, so what we want to do is we want Jesus, and, and they really don't even do this. They get their mom to actually go talk to Jesus and ask him to do this. And then Jesus kind of basically says, you know, if you really want to do that, then there's got to be a lot of suffering you go through as a result of that, and you need to learn to serve. And then there's another case where the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. And then Jesus kind of brings uh, this little child in on the conversation and says, he who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like this little child. And he basically says, he who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven also finds himself a servant of all. 
And then there's this other time where Jesus actually says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Over and over and over again, we find Jesus teaching this same lesson until finally, the night before He's to be crucified, Jesus girds Himself with a towel, takes up a water bowl, and washes the disciples' feet in order to model what He had been teaching throughout His whole ministry. And these guys refused to get it, but Jesus was persistent and continued continuing to teach this truth to them. He did not give up on them. The night before the crucifixion, they are in the upper room continuing the same argument. Who's going to be the greatest when the kingdom of heaven comes? Can you imagine this? Now, Jesus knows what's going to happen in the next few hours. He knows he is going to give his life on a cross. He knows he is going to bleed and die. He knows every one of these men, when that starts, are going to flee and retreat from him. In fact, there's one of them that's going to specifically betray him, Judas. And Jesus girds himself with a towel, gets a bowl, and he washes every one of them's feet. Now, you don't think that's a very big thing, but that's the most menial task in that day of the lowest servant. And here Jesus is taking on that posture to teach his disciples once again with persistent patience, you are called to be servants. And so we find that the truth changes people. Now, these, these disciples, including Peter, would not get this probably until after the resurrection. But I am sure those images, those teachings would stick in their brain and influence the way they live the rest of their life. So, first of all, he gives sobering truth. Second of all, he allows Peter to struggle and to even fail. Throughout the Gospels, one of the things we find is we find Peter failing at times. Fishing, he was a failure at times. You know, he fished all night, he caught nothing. He's out there one time, and he's fishing, and Jesus yells, he says, why don't you cast your nets on the other side of the boat? Right? Again, I'm sure Peter's thinking, I'm the fisherman here, I know what I'm doing, you just stick with the teaching and the preaching, right? But nevertheless, at your word, Lord, we will do this. And so he allows him to kind of struggle and fail at times. Uh, probably one of the most famous ones is, you know, which is amazing that he even did this, is when Jesus comes to him walking on the water. And Peter says, you just bid for me to come to you and I'll come to you. And then, of course, Peter gets out of the boat and he takes a few steps, but eventually what happens? He begins to sink. And he struggles and then he actually has to reach up and call out for Jesus to help him, Right? But then we also find, too, in his denial, Jesus knows it's coming. Peter denies it's coming. Peter says, there's no way I'll deny you. No way I'm going to turn from you. No way. And listen, you know, a lot of times, and I've done this in the past, I've committed Peter because all the other disciples in the garden, except for John, all the other disciples, you don't hear nothing from them after the garden except for Peter and John. That's it. And there's part of me, I think, I, initially, you know, when I've read this story, and, and maybe I've even preached on this in the past, I don't know, but a lot of times I, I actually commended Peter because he actually tries to stay with Jesus for a little bit, you know? 
He, he actually follows Jesus at a distance. I don't know where all the other ones are. Now, Peter, now John, he's got some, you know, some connections. He's able to get into the palace and that kind of stuff. And, and so he stays pretty close. And he's even at the foot of the cross with Mary when Jesus is crucified. And, but Peter tries to stay as close as he can to Jesus. And, and, you know, there's part of me, I thought, that's pretty admirable. You know, he's trying to do... But you know what? I, there was nothing but pride. I think there was part of Peter that just wanted to prove Jesus wrong. I'm going to stick with you, Jesus. I know you said I wouldn't, but I'm going to. And you know what he ended up doing? Exactly what Jesus said. And Jesus let him struggle. And look, there's this one point right after he denies him three times, it says that Jesus' eyes fell upon Peter. And he wept bitterly as a result of his failure. And I thank God for that. And there are times that some of us need to get to that point in our life where we weep bitterly over our sin and our failure. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with feeling bad when you've messed up. Now, the world would try to tell you, oh, just get over it. Don't feel too bad. Nobody's perfect. Listen, you need to repent of your sin. We need to feel awful about ourselves when we mess up. But at the same time, there is a gracious God who comes to the repentant sinner to restore them and to take care of them and to remind them of his patience. Amen? See, I, and there are a lot of times I don't want my children to struggle and fail. Most of you have been there. You've, you've raised children. I don't want them to struggle and fail. And here's why. I'm going to tell you, it's a purely selfish motive. Because I know when they struggle and they fail, a lot of times what's going to happen is eventually they're going to end up whining or I'm going to have to clean up a mess. Right? So rather than allow Cross to go get a drink for himself and fix that drink for himself, I'll get it, right? Why? Because I don't want to clean up a mess. It's purely selfish. It has nothing to do with, you know, wanting to serve my child or anything like that. I guess I could stand up here and be like, yes, I'm going to serve it to my children. No, it's selfish. I don't want to clean up a mess. I'll just get up. I'll get the drink. That way you won't spill it, right? But how else will they learn, right? So like riding a bicycle. You know, you want to hold on to that seat. And you know if you let go, it's going to fall the first three or four times or five, ten, twelve, hundred times. I don't know how much it takes. And you're going to have to put up with the whining and the crying and all that kind of stuff. And you don't want to, so you just don't let go. You just stay right there. But there's Jesus with Peter, and he lets him go. Okay, go ahead, Peter. See how far you get with that pride. See how far you get with trying on your own. I'll let you struggle. I'll let you fail. But just remember, you'll always come back to me. All right? And listen, there are going to be times in your life where God seems distant, where he's kind of let you do your own thing, and you're going to find yourself failing. You're going to find yourself struggling. You're going to find yourself you know, coming to the realization that I cannot do this on my own. And that leads to my next point. Not only does God give sobering truth, not only does he allow us to struggle, but he also restores us. This I love about God. After the resurrection, Peter has decided he would go back fishing. Jesus has raised from the dead, and he has appeared to the women at the tomb. Peter and John race to the tomb to see who can get there first, and they find that the tomb is empty. They end up seeing Jesus, and then they don't see him for a little while. And Peter says, you know what, guys, I'm going back fishing. And they decide to go fishing. And when they go fishing, they're out there, and there's this guy they notice out on the shore cooking. 
And he yells out to Peter and says, Hey, cast your net on the other side. There's Jesus again telling Peter what to do. Cast your net on the other side. At that point, Peter knows exactly who this is. They catch more fish than they can just about handle. They row into the shore. Peter gets out. He can't even wait for the boat to get to the shore, and he runs up. And there's this conversation at that point between Jesus and Peter. And to me, it's one of the most touching conversations in all of Scripture. Because when Jesus told the women at the tomb, he said, Go tell the disciples and Peter. Can you imagine how Peter must have felt those days following the crucifixion? He knew he failed. He knew he denied Christ three times, just like Christ told him he would. He knew he had fallen. He knew that there was nothing he could do to fix it. And I think there is a part of Peter that even though Christ had appeared to him, and he, I think there's a part of Peter that just felt like there's, there's no way God can use me now. But when he specifically tells those women, tell Peter, I think that was a signal to us as readers, God's not done with Peter. Jesus is not finished with Peter. And so after, that, after he cooks that little meal, he brings Peter and the rest of the disciples. He brings them, uh, brings Peter to the side. And he asks Peter this three times, do you love me? Peter answers, he says, Lord, you, you know I love you. And then he asks him again, he says, and then he says, well, then feed my sheep. And he says, well, do you love me? He says, well, feed my lambs. And, and he said, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And, and we miss this conversation, and we miss a little bit of that conversation because we read it in the English, but essentially uh, there's different words for love in the Greek, and some commentators say it really doesn't mean anything, and some say I, I think it means something because when Jesus asked Peter initially, he says, do you love me? The word he uses there is, phileo, is agape. He says, do you love me with everything you've got? And you know what Peter says? He says, Lord, you know, I, I don't... I, I, I phileo you. The, the, the word there is brotherly love. I love you like a brother, Jesus. Now, that's a difference. That's a difference, you know. You know, to be totally given over to something and to kind of love, you know, really care about something is completely different. And so Jesus says, are you totally given over to me? And Peter says, well, I love you like a brother. And then Jesus asks him again, are you totally given over to me? He says, well, Jesus, you know I love you like a brother. And he's asking him one more time. And here's the time Jesus says, do you love me like a brother, Peter? And Peter says, you know all things. And you think, well, what is, the, what, what is Jesus getting at? Here, here's what I think he's getting at. Maybe I'm wrong, but here's what he... I think it shows how Jesus just kind of comes down to where we are and meets us right where we're at. He knows where we are. He knows our failures, our shortcomings. God knows, uh, where, he, he knows what we're capable of. And so when he asked Peter that last time, do you love me like a brother? I think it was a way of Jesus coming down to Peter's level and saying, that's all I want. I want what you got. If that's the best you can give me, then give me that. 
And here, I like Peter's honesty because now Peter has come to the point. The old Peter, I think, would have said, you know I'll give everything for you. In fact, he already said that, didn't he? When he said, everybody else will deny you. Everybody else will run away. But not me. I'll go to jail. I'll even die for you. He was telling Jesus, in a sense, I love you with everything I have. And when Jesus asked him again, do you love me with everything you have? Peter could only honestly answer, no. I just love you like a brother. And I tell you, that I believe is where God wants us. And I think that Jesus was satisfied with that answer because what we have is we don't have a Peter now that is going off at the mouth. We don't have a Peter that is pretending to be better than he really is. We have a Peter who is being honest with himself and with God and acknowledging I have fallen short. I can't love you like that. And God is saying, that's fine. I want what you got. Amen? He is patient with us, and he restores us. And then he tells Peter, that's all I want. Now go feed my sheep. Go do what I've called you to do, and be what I've called you to be. Amen? Because he told Peter back at Caesarea Philippi, he said, you're Peter, you're the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. See, where this leads, God's patience leads to this. God's patience leads to Pentecost, in a sense. Right? Because what we find at Pentecost is we find that man who ran, we find him standing boldly, proclaiming, Jesus Christ and Him crucified at the day of Pentecost. What we find in Peter's, uh, what we find later on in Peter's life is we find death. This man who would run from Jesus' crucifixion in Rome would die crucified upside down. This reed flapping in the wind, he became a solid rock, dependable. Why? Not because of what he did but because of Jesus' patience. Amen? Because of God's patience, we can become followers who fail rather than people who fail to follow. So we don't need to let condemnation paralyze us when we fall short. When you fail, God is patient. Neither should we get too comfortable with our sin that we don't feel horrible about it and want to change. If you are too comfortable with your sin, you need to be careful and don't think that that is God's approval just because He is patient. In 2 Peter, I want to re read this in closing. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is from the man we've been talking about. 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient towards us, not willing that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. See, God's patience towards us is intended to bring us to a place of repentance, not for us to stay comfortable where we are and not for us to feel condemned about our failures, but for us to repent and to change as people so that we again
can be followers who fail rather than people who fail to follow. That's why God is patient with us. And He would rather you fail than fail to follow. Because every day He is wanting to change you. And He does that through sobering truth. He does that, no, he, he, he does that through... Um, let me remember. <laughs> he does that through allowing you to fail. And finally, He does that through restoring you when you do fail. If you will, please stand. Here's what I want us to do this morning. and is uh, I want us to come to the altar this morning. And there are a lot of you in here, I think you, there, there, there may be, there are two groups like I've talked about. I think when we talk about God's patience, sometimes we can take that patience for granted and we think God's patience is God's approval. It isn't. God is always changing you through His truth, through allowing you to fail, through His restoration. He's always changing you as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a son or daughter, as a minister, as, in the workplace, as an individual. God's always changing you. Do not allow God's patience with you to become uh, His approval of just who you are. We always need to change. Remember Philippians 1.6 where it says, He which begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That means until I see Jesus, He's still going to be working on me. Why? Because I've not arrived. I've not got it all together. But at the same time, there's a lot of us in here, and I think probably more so, where we just felt like, I, I, I don't measure up. There's no way I can do what God's called me to do. I failed too many times. I frustrated God's grace, and there's no way He can use me. Let me tell you, God is patient, and He is actively involved with you. I don't care how many times you failed. I don't care how many times you feel like you've turned your back upon God. He is patient with you, and He wants to change you and continue to use you so that you go from a reed blowing in the wind to a rock, something that is dependable and steady. Amen? So I'm going to ask you to join me in the altar this morning, and what I want you to do is offer yourself to God's patience. I want you to say, God, I, I, I know I'm not where I should be, but help me change. Give me the truth that I need. Yes, I know I will struggle. It will not be easy, but, and, and, but help me, Lord, to be repentant so you can come along and restore me. And as I pray, will you please come to this altar this morning and pray with me and offer yourself to the active patience of God. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. God, I thank you for every individual in this sanctuary. God, I thank you, Lord, for, their pl for the plans and the purposes that you have for them. I thank you, God, right now, Father, for your patience towards them. Lord, there are every one of us in here, Father, are in need, in need of your active patience. God, I thank you, Lord, that you do more than tolerate us. Lord, this is, Lord, sometimes this is the mistake I make. I think you just tolerate me. But God, you're more than tolerant, God. You're actively involved. You clean up my mess. 
You come alongside of me when I'm frustrated and when I whine, when things don't go my way. You are present. You said you would never leave me nor forsake me, Lord. You are patient with me. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, there are things I cry, things I whine about that have no bearing on who I am as a person. They have really no real bearing on life. I just get frustrated because my comfort gets disrupted. And Lord, you're still patient with me. You have every right, dear God, every right to say, that's nothing. Why are you so upset? But yet you're patient with me. There are times I fail. There are times, dear God, where I just, just completely miss the mark as far as trying to do your will. And you're patient with me, Lord. And God, right now, I know there are many in this altar this morning, in this sanctuary, more, they may feel unworthy. They may feel like they have messed up too many times. <laughs> but Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your patience. And I pray the Holy Spirit would be there to help them feel that failure. Yes, we should feel it. Yes, we should know we have messed up. We have missed the mark. But Lord, I thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation. There's a difference between being convicted and being condemned. Because there is a God in heaven who is patient with us when we repent and ready to restore us and continue to change us through His sobering truth, through the experiences of life, and bring us to that point of restoration, saying, feed my sheep, do my work, be that witness in the workplace, be that good father or mother, be that godly father or mother, be that godly son or daughter, be that minister within the church, be that individual in the community reaching out, meeting the needs of others, be that servant to those around you, be that good neighbor. You're calling us to that, dear God. And Lord, we feel so unworthy at times. Or maybe we just get too comfortable with life as it is. But God, I know in your patience, you're calling us to more. You're calling us to go from being a reed flapping in the wind, doing whatever we feel like, whenever we feel like doing it, to being individuals who can be depended upon to being individuals which we can look that can be looked to as examples. Individuals through which you can work consistently, Lord. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that this man from Galilee who went from being a vacillating, foul-mouthed fisherman to a rock upon which the church was built on the day of Pentecost as he stood and he preached Jesus boldly. And he eventually would give his life crucified upside down in Rome. He lived out what Jesus had prophesied when he changed his name. He said, you're not going to be a reed blowing in the wind anymore, but you're going to be a rock. And God, you have given all of us a new name. You've given all of us a new character. You've given all of us a new destiny. You've given all of us a new purpose. And Lord, we don't have to remain the people we are. But through your patience and involvement in our life, God, we can become who you created us to be in Christ. And I pray we can do that, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name.